when you work systemically with good principles in a place, you start seeing a turnaround within 18 months. Always start with a geology. You learn so much about a place that way. I don't care whether you call this regeneration or Fred. We have to stay in the game of evolution. I like to say that just a bunch of things in a circle does not make it a whole. It's a list in a circle. Climate change may be the best thing that's ever happened to humanity. We are unable to look at simple linear systems as a culture. And I'll say that is fucked up. Well, greetings and welcome on back to the Making Permaculture Stronger podcast. I'm your host, Dan Palmer, and this is episode 21. Now, before I introduce and say a little bit about today's guest, Bill Reed, I thought I'd tell you about what's been happening the last week. Joel Glansberg, who was my guest on episode 20, as you may have heard there, he has been in Australia. I organised a free talk for him a couple of weeks ago. And then this week just gone, the last six days, we've been together. It's been a phenomenal week, so I, I really made the most of his visit. He stayed with me. I dragged Joel to a whole bunch of different projects from supporting um, a Steiner school to go through the visioning process for uh, some garden redevelopment to doing something similar with an organic farming co-op to going out to a couple of consultancies on, on five acres, 30 acres, stuff like that. And being able to go along with Joel and then get his reflections from someone who's been working on this really exciting regenerative approach for 30 years or something. Not only that, but then be able to go to the next job and try out what we'd been discussing was really incredible. So I feel like I've just come off a really steep learning curve. We finished the six days with a workshop yesterday down in Melbourne, about 18 people, and that was fantastic. So that was cool. Joel's agreed to have, have another conversation where it'd be, I thought it'd be fun just to talk through our adventures throughout the week. <laughs> it's, a pretty, it's a pretty wild ride, good times. And having spoken with recently with Carol Sanford and then Joel, I'm now going to share today a chat with uh, Bill Reed, which was recorded a few weeks ago. And Bill is a colleague of both Joel and Carol, so will take us, give us another perspective on the same body of work. Uh, and because there's no introduction to Bill in our chat, we just launch right on in there. I thought I'd read out a, a bit of a bio just so you can place him in, in context. So this is from the regenesisgroup.com team page on the web. And so Bill is a principal in Integrative Design Incorporated and Regenesis, organizations working to lift green building and community planning into full integration and evolution with living systems. His work centers on creating and implementing a whole and living systems design process. Oh, that sounds like a bit of me. The benefits of this process include higher efficiency, lower costs, reduced waste, faster time to market, and the realization of exponential value to the social, ecological, financial, and human qualities of a project, the community, and its ecosystem. Crikey. Bill is an author of many technical articles and contributed to many books, including co-author of the seminal work, Integrative Design Guide to Green Building. He's a founding board of director. He's a founding director on the board of the U.S. Green Building Council and one of the co-founders of the LEED Green Building Rating System. In addition to being considered one of the leading thinkers in this field, Bill has also consulted on over 200 green design commissions, the majority of which are LEED Gold and Platinum and Living Building Challenge projects. He's also a keynote speaker at major building and design events as well as a guest lecturer to universities throughout Europe and North America, including Harvard, MIT, Princeton and the University of Pennsylvania. So that gives you a little bit of background on Bill, who does um, a lot of work around the world consulting through Regenesis Group, who I've met in person, I think only the once, twice, 
seen them twice, once in New Zealand, once in Australia, and we've had several conversations, and I'm just fascinated by by Bill's take on all this stuff. So enjoy the chat, and I'll uh, check in again with you at the end. All right, so here I am today in conversation with Bill Reed. G'day, Bill. G'day, Dan. Hi, everybody. <laughs> and where where are you right now? You're in. I'm in, just outside of Boston, in Boston. Arlington, Massachusetts. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for being in conversation. It's exciting for me to, the way it's worked out without, it just sort of happened this way really, is that you're the third podcast episode in a row with someone who's caught up with regenerative paradigm living systems thinking. So I spoke with Carol Sanford a couple of weeks back and then shortly after that, Joel Glansberg, both of which are, my understanding is they're close colleagues of yours. And, and here we are. Yeah. Well, yeah, we are close colleagues. So you're, we're, we all have three different approaches to this work, three different fields of this work, but it's the same work. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And I'm, I'm getting a lot of excitement, a lot of really interested feedback from listeners, a little bit of confusion after ah, good. a little controversy too. Yeah. After Carol's one, one, one of the themes after Carol's chat with Carol was she said some stuff around humans, not being part of nature, humans being. Yeah. Nature. That one. I've, I've reflected on that since uh, I actually okay. cut that too. Yeah, great. Well, it'd be, yeah, I'd love to have your thoughts on that. I've also been reflecting on, I suspect a lot of people out there have been reflecting on it. Like, what, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Well, you want to start there? Beautiful. Oh, yeah. Do you want to share your reflections and all? Yeah, sure. I think that Carol's specifically speaking about roles, that humans have a unique role. I, I don't think you can argue. We, cer- we certainly are natural, right? We are nature. And but Carol's a very precise thinker. And she may be saying that it's not enough to think that we're nature. It, it doesn't really give us a, a, a precise description about how our, what our role is in adding value to the system. Bucky Fuller talked about humans' role as well, being ambulatory, being conscious, although I think we could argue that my, animals, my, my, animal, my animal is my wife. My wife is, uh, is a zookeeper and zoologist, and we are surrounded by animals. Sorry for the dog. And they certainly have consciousness. Sorry, I'm, I'm still laughing because the moment you said we're surrounded by animals, the dog barked. Yeah, well, it's appropriate. <laughs> and I have about 30 birds sitting next to me in the room here in an aviary and uh, yeah, yeah. we do animal rehabilitation. And so, but hu- humans have a large neocortex, right? And that adds some dimension to responsibility. So do dolphins for that matter, right? And other mammals. Why, what does the, how does that make us unique? What I can say on reflection is that based on articles that I've read that the most healthy, now this is going to be controversial, I think, the most healthy systems, meaning that they are capable of self-organizing and have a greater diversity of species and greater diversity of relationships between species are those systems where humans have been integrally involved. So nature, uh, I love that this quote from Kat Anderson in her book, Tending the Wild, but when humans remove themselves from nature, the land becomes wilderness and the plants and animals retreat spiritually from the earth and hide from humans. So there is a, we have this tending the wild role that uh, certainly on the East coast of the United States from North Carolina to Newfoundland, the native peoples manage the forest uh, with a burning regimen. And the average number of trees per acre, based on the um, Louisiana Purchase, was seven trees per acre, I understand. I mean, now there's hundreds per acre, or dozens anyway, multiple dozens per acre. And we think that that's natural. 
But in fact, with the fire regimen, there was a whole different ecosystem here that had supported many, basically supported hickory, chestnut, and oak trees, which basically are nut-bearing trees, and it killed off the beeches and maples. When the fire regimen stopped, the thin bark beeches and maples that who were killed, they were killed by those cold fires in the spring and the fall, actually then occluded the forest, and we became a beech maple forest. So the Europeans, once the Europeans settled the North American continent, they actually drastically changed the nature of this ecosystem, simplified it, and made it less diverse and healthy. So maybe I didn't need to go through that explanation, but humans do have a role. And the question is, if we are just natural and sitting there, let's be nature and let things happen as they are, the, uh, the system would be different than it is now. Yeah, so, same story in Australia, the, the Aboriginal traditional, I don't want to say owners or stewards, after the chat with Carol, <laughs> aspects of this landscape for tens of thousands of years using fire and other relatively simple management techniques applied in incredibly sophisticated ways maintain this, this incredibly complex mosaic yeah. of, of water, mm-hmm. wetland, forest, grasslands, and, and very much the same story. Yeah, I do like that. I mean, that, that was part of what I got from what Carol's point was. If, if, if we say we're nature, we're back to looking at ants and rats, etc. You know, so I, what I took from that was, oh, okay, yeah, we, if we, and I, and I personally got something out of that because I, I have been informed by this idea of the things humans are creating these days aren't these the beautiful things we used to create. And we're not participating in evolution. It's almost like we're going in the other direction. And so but we're occupying the land. We're not inhabiting it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, just as a relevant aside, I've been listening to this guy, Daniel Schmachtenberger. Oh, yeah. I even love saying yeah. his. Yes, I've interacted with Daniel. Okay, yeah. I'd heard the distinction between complex and complicated before, but I, I quite like that, the way he construes evolution as, as, as a proclivity or an inclination towards more and more complex systems where humans are perhaps the most complex output so far of evolution that we're aware of and, and the mm-hmm. moment at which evolution as part of life was able to look back at itself and become conscious of itself. But that in general, what we're doing in modern culture is, is going in the other direction and taking complex systems, which are nonlinear and you can't fully break down and, and explain and then reducing them to simple components. Like yeah, a, fragments. Yeah. Fragments. And then, and then re then selling the fragments and then which are reassembled into complicated things like laptops. And, right. And with, when you work with fragments, you end up with unintended consequences. Because you can't, once you solve a problem or address a fragment, 400 other issues pop up if you're not working as a whole system. Now, I haven't listened to your interview with Joel or your others, I'm sorry to say, but uh, I think it's really important. And, you know, I think we first met Dan talking about the idea of holes Mm -hmm. and how one actually works with holes. And I think that's an alien construct for most, most of us, a very important part of our practice. Is, yep. is actually how to actually hold holes. Yeah, I, I mean, I'd love to go into that. You're so right. Like, I, I've got this beautiful colleague, one of my closest friends in all the world, um, Adam Grubb, who we've been running a business together for 10 years and all that. And we've had a lot of discussions and done a lot of design work together. And a place we got to in our conversation about this stuff is he was like, dude, I just, I don't know what you mean when you say a hole or wholeness. I just, I don't, I don't get it. Well, well, let's talk about that. I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know. There's no can't guarantee that I had the right answer, but I certainly have a perspective to offer if you'd like to. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, go for it. Well, I'd I'd like to keep things pretty simple and real, and let's first define a whole. And so I would call a whole any self-organizing living entity. 
any any living entity that actually is able to replicate. Now that could be an organization. It's certainly a human being. It might be a wetland system. There's a whole but you know anything that has the self-organizing capability to evolve would be a, a whole country corporation. All those are living entities. But let's look at what we do to the living entity we call human. I think you may have heard me use this analogy before. I use it a lot. Is that I want to get to know Dan. And the way I get to know, if I'm going to get to know Dan, the way we get to know our cities or work on sustainability or work on even permaculture, I'm going to take, if you're, if you're not a good practitioner, is um, I'm going to take your liver and kidneys and skeletal structure and your DNA sequencing and put them in a vessel, stir them around, and I've somehow created this list of all the parts of Dan. And I put them in that pot, and do I get Dan? You do not get Dan. You do not get Dan. As Russell Acoff says, you get a mess. <laughs> and so what is it about being whole that allows the whole entity of Dan to express itself? Well, we don't know, and that's one of the mysteries of life, right? But we do know that there is an energy or some source of being, beingness, that allows all those pieces to work together. So the only way that I get, can get to get to know Dan is by looking at Dan, not the pieces. If I dissect a frog, the, the frogginess stops, right? I can maybe understand a frog's liver, but I can't understand a frog. So, and maybe if I could look at your liver and you were an alcoholic, I might get a clue that maybe there's a little problem with your liver and maybe you have, an you're, you have a tendency towards alcoholism or whatever, but that would be about it from the liver be oversimplified. So the way I get to know Dan is by seeing how Dan works. Dan is in relationship with other like beings or any living entity. How you treat a wetland, how you engage your partner and children and your dog and me and your colleagues. Those, pa those are patterns, and it's, but we see them all the time and we observe them all the time. It's how we get to know people. So the way I get to know Dan is to observe the patterns of your interaction, how you're interacting with me. And I get to know the essence at some point, if I'm really digging deeply, of Dan. That's Dan, not your liver, not your kidneys. And what we have a tendency to do in cities, let's say, which is my field, is we grab a little mobility, a little gender equity, social justice, uh, water, water pollution issues, habitat connectivity, right? And we throw them in a vessel and we stir them around and we're working in a, with a hole. And uh, I like to say that just a bunch of things in a circle does not make it a hole. It's a list in a circle. <laughs> I love that. And so people have a tendency to use whole by actually aggregating pieces. Now, Wendell Berry actually wrote a super article on this in his did you, you know Wendell Berry's work? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so in The Gift of Good Land, Chapter 9, Solving for Pattern, he talks about you have to work with pieces and you have to work with parts, but it's not the place where you start. You start with the whole, and then the pieces have the context with which to understand them. So it's not wrong to work with pieces. It's just the most difficult place to start. And you and I have been talking about the idea, well, parts, pieces. You can start with pieces as long as you're looking for the pattern of those pieces in terms. So you, you can't give up. Solving. You can't solve for pieces, but the pieces can be a clue to a whole. But somehow we have to actually work with holes. And we do it naturally. We just don't understand that we're doing. So I get to know Dan. I can, first of all, I get to know your personality. You know, your personality is frankly an expression of your psychoses generally. 
I have a little bit of road, I used to have a little bit of road rage problem. I grew up around New York City. You drove with your middle finger extended and your hand on the horn, the way you drive in New York, at least the way I drove. So my wife hates that. And yet she fell in love with me, not because I have road rage, because there's something deeper within me that she values, right? And that's the essence that we're talking about. That's the core patterns that actually generate your life, what you, uh, what you aspire to, what you, what, why you, when you thrive, what gives you joy, what gives others joy when you're working with them. You're, you're touching on the essence then. So it takes a little bit of work to get to know a person, get to know a whole, and it takes a little bit of work to get to know a whole city or a whole wetland. But every one of them have, and this is another dangerous territory where a lot of people bridle, is that every one of those systems have a role to play or a purpose. And this is where ecologists go crazy because, uh, well, how can anything, how can nature have a purpose or how can any uh, river have a purpose? It just is. Well, you can't, maybe that's true, although I don't believe it, it has a role to play within the system it's nested in. A river in the Mississippi River in New Orleans is different than the Amazon River in Brazil. It serves differently, it works differently, has different species. Why is that? So as Dana Meadows talks about, the system has parts and relationships. The system also has to have purpose or else we can't work on it. And I'm sorry, I'm getting, getting in lecture mode here, so I should probably get off my high horse. This is good. It's, I mean, it's so important. Yeah, I almost feel like maybe that, that, that's enough to focus on. I mean, maybe we come back to nature as well, but the idea of, of a whole, and it's, I mean, I'm sure a lot of people, people that are listening to this, I presume, are mostly people that are into permaculture, given the name of the podcast. And this is a huge issue in permaculture, is, is that we adopt the culturally default way of approaching anything. And often we're working with landscapes, but permaculture is also applied to organizations and whatever else. And we go in there and you've got to consciously resist that um, tendency to do a part audit, an audit of parts, and just start to you know, count and, and categorize the pieces and, and, and think of coming to an understand of, a standing of a whole through effectively assembling your understanding of, of the parts. Where it, it, Let me just interject here. You yeah. can love a whole. It's difficult to love parts. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> and, and that's really what I find. I like to characterize it, maybe oversimplify and, and romantic. But I, what, what, I, what our work does when we work with communities is we help people fall in love with life again. And that's a great motivator, right? I mean, it's a different motivator than fear or that we're gonna, all going to die, which is, you know, fear is a great motivator too. But yeah, yeah. Um, much better if we can associate this work with love. Mm, yeah, and no, I like that. It'd be good to explore that more too. I want to go more into whole, holes and parts. Something that resonates for me, that's, that's when projects I'm part of go particularly well, something like that is happening. Like people, does, mm. I don't know if, yeah, I'm not if I use that exact phrasing, falling in love with life again, but they're certainly, they're infused with a fresh energy and attentiveness to each other, to themselves, to the place they're in, and to this sure. possibility of, of co-evolving. Well, it's understanding. You know, understanding is the beginning of, if you don't understand it, the per, it's, when we, we go into some pretty, not very savory places to work and think, oh, brother, this is really going to be depressing. And within two or three days, we fall in love with it. And because you're beginning to understand it, why it is who it is, or, you know, just like a, a damaged adult or individual, once you understand why they are the way they are, you, you can't help but love them. So um, maybe love is pushing it, but certainly deep understanding is, is revelatory to people, right? 
invaluable to people. Yeah, there you go, listeners. You can take your pick. Deep understanding yeah. will work better for some of you. Some of you will be right into to love. Uh, let, okay, let me let me have a go at recapping what you were saying about holes because I think that's really juicy, useful stuff. So, um, you define a hole as any self-organizing living entity with the capacity to evolve, and <clears throat> the idea that that holes well holes have parts like i have my liver and my organs and all that but the way you get to to this deep understanding potentially love of a hole is it reminds me of what carol was saying about imaging in context or observing in context you see the thing in its role or you know being absolutely being in in the world yep. it's 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 through the the things it's doing and like you and said, we hold a hole we hold a hole through essence the uniqueness the core uniqueness of that entity. Yeah, so I want to come to that. So, so the whole is a self-organizing living entity that you, you get to appreciate by kind of seeing it do what it does in the world. And, and the idea is that each whole has a role to play, be it a river or a person or whatever, and that it also has these two, these two aspects, personality and essence. And I think this is truly fascinating because I didn't mention this to Carol, but I, I just a bit before the chat with her, I had the realization when I was talking to some clients because I'd, I'd gotten a feel for the, for the distinction, um, particularly uh, in terms of people, but also in terms of families and I uh, don't want to say assemblage, uh, you know, like holes that, that have people in them, like families and businesses. Well, that's a, that's a whole, a family is a whole. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, well, it reproduces. It, it, it's a self-organizing living entity that can reproduce itself and evolve. But well, and you're, and, you're and you're teaching your children how to be an effective family bearer or family organizer in the future. Totally. And so the idea is, if we, if we say, like, so Bill, we we look, we take you as a whole, and we're getting to know you by seeing you um, in process in the world, and you have personality in essence, and and part of your personality historically at least has been the road rage. Mm -hmm. And luckily, it sounds like your wife initially caught you in a episode between two instances of road rage and fell in love with you. <laughs> <Yeah. Probably. laughs> and so the idea is that personality, you, you know, you pick that up because you lived in New York and it was a, it was a cult kind of something that was imposed, imposed on you culturally. And personality is this accumulation of stuff that's comes from outside. And then there's essence, which is, it's like Carol says, is maybe whether or not you're born with it, it's something that. Yeah. We could, we could argue. I mean, there's no answer to that, right? Yeah. It's a construct. It, this it's is a there. philosophical construct. It, that's right. It, it's, but it's, it's there from fairly early on. And it's, well, you know, when a child slips out of the womb, you know, they are different. Mo the moment they're born, you've seen that, right? Mm. Um, powerful. You know, where did that come from? And what's that, you know, and this idea of essence, which, like at first, it's one of those words that that can sound trippy, hippie, and and vague. But working as I get to know you, your regenesis, you, Joel, and, and Carol, like there's no, there's nothing vague about Carol. It's super nope. precise, and it's this idea of distinctiveness. It, you know, it's really quite practical. What makes this whole distinct? Exactly. What makes it unique. What's its What's its sing, singularity? And that you can come. You can't just walk up and grab a hold of essence. It's not like another part that's sitting on the shelf. And I'm really excited to learn more about this because I, I get a taste of it when I'm working with people. But the revelation I mentioned or the realization was that this applies fully to a landscape. You know, when I'm working with a place. Absolutely. It has essence. And in particular, I'm working with a lot of farms and I'm, I'm like, what's personality? Personality are things like the fences, right? That have been arbitrarily imposed and, and or, whatever or, else. Or frankly, crappy land use practices. That's uh, yeah, it. that's right. Yep. Yep. And, and, that, and often that's the main thing that hits you in the face when you arrive. And part of my job is to, 
is to mentally sort of delete that and go deeper and, and what's the essence of this place what's unique about this place in the world and then what you know what then we move into the question around what well, what's the role and what's the role of these people in this place and all that stuff and our philosophy is that essence is permanent right uh, i think that that could be you could argue that but nonetheless it that we we have seen we have gone back two and a half billion years on some some areas we've been working and the expression of geology has been manifest throughout those two and a half billion years on this place and still is today and the people are different because of that i could actually share a story about that if you're interested but it's powerful stuff because when you and when you help people see those repeated patterns whether it's in and those patterns are the same when you get to the core in the in the ecology or the, you know, the natural system, the social systems, the cultural systems, the economic systems, the psychosocial systems, businesses, habitat, obviously, those patterns become, you can see the pattern manifest throughout them. That's when people say, oh my goodness, this is amazing. I never yep. knew this was so powerful. It'd be great to hear some stories because one thing I really, I mean, I think the story will do the job, but what I get, want to get across is again, this thing that people are hearing words like whole and love and essence, but I've seen how you apply this to place and it's, it's doing a lot of the stuff that permaculturists do. In fact, a lot of the people doing this work are permaculturists. Absolutely. It, it's it's um, geology, hydrology, uh, flora, fauna, wind, you know, it's, it's all that stuff. It's the same sort of stuff, but it's approaching it within the frame of how can we not get kind of distracted at a super, special level of that stuff how can we use all of those things in, as as traces and then and to track down the the uniqueness the essence of this place and then and then it'd be lovely to hear which of course the point of that is so you don't get there by just sitting there meditating it's work and you're using a lot of tools familiar to permaculturists and the point of getting there is not just to, um again to, to be able to i don't know meditate and contemplate the essence of this place it it's super practical. No, it's a practical tool. Yeah. But tell us a story. Oh, yeah, I got lots. I'm trying to think. Um, tell us a story. Right, let, me, let me tell you. So sometimes we don't get this far, and sometimes, sometimes we aren't able to really get it, but when it grabs, it's powerful. So we worked at Loretto Bay probably 15 years ago, um, large, ecologically healthy, theoretically, sustainability resort on the Baja Peninsula in Mexico. So anyway, we got to know the place and we found out that the Baja Peninsula, as you may know, is a desert. I think you're probably familiar with that. Um, but it wasn't 400 years ago. It was actually a scrub oak forest. It was a dry land, certainly dry land, but it wasn't a desert. When Europeans came and introduced grazing animals, I'm not against grazing animals, but here, in this case, they just let the grazing animals run crazy and wild. They ripped the, ripped the grasses out. And the water shed, the water, instead of being diffused through the landscape, actually hit the arroyos, the stream beds, ripped through them, cut a V-shape, lowered the water table as a result, desiccated the landscape, and turned it into a desert in about 50 years. So, been a desert ever since then, because they keep grazing cattle and goats, and it never has a chance to recover, and probably can't recover until humans actually get back and put some gabions in, you know, the usual technique for dry land. So turns out that that was one, one uh, factor in this landscape. Another was that the, because of all the erosion, all the many of the mangrove estuaries were filled in and either by human, avarice, or just plain lack of, lack of management. And so this, the mangrove uh, estuaries are the seedbed for the health of the oceans, right? This is where the bulk of 
the young fish, shrimp and everywhere are raised and born. So the core pattern here, the core process here was one of exchange or estuarying. That, you know, that was pretty straightforward. We could identify that. But then we go one step further. We said every land, every land has a purpose, right? Or a role. We call it a vocation or a calling. It has a something to live into. And it took us six months to get this. Number one, because I was pretty new to this work. We were kind of stumbling around. And, but it turned out that the vocation of this place, when we hit it, was magical. And the, the vocation was that we are here participating in the health of the Sea of Cortez. We are here there to heal, the, to keep the Sea of Cortez healthy. That's our role. And what was really interesting is that all the tourism groups, because they're dependent on whale watching and the health of the ocean, right? The farmers are dependent on the nutrients that come from the fish because they're not getting much from the land. The uh, fishermen are obviously dependent on the health of the sea. The developers, of course, dependent on tourism, are dependent on the health of the sea. So everybody, when they heard that, they said, oh, that's what we have to be working on. And you see how that just it created this whole larger potential role for us all to step into in our individual domains that we were working in. We could all agree that this is our role here. That makes some sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. And I think it's a great example. And one thing I'm, I'm realizing too, is that it doesn't really matter. You, Cause you might say, no, nah, I don't, I don't really think, I don't know if there's this kind of unique essence underlying everything, because of course for a lot of people they haven't, they don't know how to get there. They don't have, they haven't had that experience. Right. But yeah. even, even if you just go as far as saying, like from that example, that taking the time and it wasn't random, it wasn't in a different direction. It was through being in that place and, and looking at what had happened and the aspects of the ecology you described, you arrived at, at something that all the different um, human stakeholders, at least, you know, the, the farmers, the tourists, the tourist operators, the developer, they could all latch onto, you know, and yeah, that frame. It's like, boom. Yeah. We, that's something we can, we all want to participate in. We all want to contribute to us. So, so suddenly the more superficial differences we might've had in the adversarial and the rivalry and the, Oh, you know, yeah. and this is what we're talking about in terms of what sustainability really requires is the ability to regenerate relationship over time. That's what regeneration is about. It's not just regenerating once that's restoration. That's what, you know, people, people mistake these words, the, the regenerative agriculture. Yeah. It isn't just restoring the land once, it's actually keeping it evolving, lifting it up even richer and richer, which I think as people are acknowledging subliminally. But we need to say it. Regeneration is a continual process of rebirth. And these people are, through that kind of an initial, really essential essence-based messaging and understanding, they are able to keep rebirthing. Yeah, after meeting you some years back, I had a, a design consultancy on, I don't know, five or 10 acres or something. And I played around with this idea. And I, I did have a moment where there was the, a, a couple who had the land and they, they had superficially really different. One was really into trees. One was, in, was, in a, was into more in permaculture and stuff and oaks and fire retardants and all that. One was, she was an ecologist and she was into grasslands and habitat for uh, little known native species and so on. And then there was mm -hmm. the land itself. And I was just, I was playing with that idea. And for the first time in, in, in consciously, like what is the essence of this place? What's unique of, of the place and the people? I dropped to a point where I came up with, with, it was like, oh, hang on. What I'm hearing from all of them, from all three, these two people in the place is this idea of in, interconnected um, mosaics or eddies and flows. Beautiful. Um, yeah. We're, we're, 
what what she was saying was I, I want to have these pockets of grass where we, we protect the remnant native grasses that are they're interconnected so that, you know that that seeds yeah. and whatever can move and animals can move through he was saying i want interconnected pockets of trees and those two define each other you know and frame each other and the way that this part of the australian landscape used to work was these interconnected mosaics of of wet areas dry areas and, and so they were picking up on that naturally right yeah yeah and to arrive there was like wow wow this just in a sentence suddenly we've got something that that it's everyone co is cohering, right? Yeah, and they're already that's what it's kind of in a sense what they're all trying to say, and it and it, and it harmonizes beautifully. There you go. Yeah. Well, it's not that hard. We, you know, and we do it all the time with people watching, right? Now, we typically observe personalities because that's more interesting to find out where people are screwed up, right? Uh, you know, be snarky about it, but at the deepest level, people watching is about essence, certainly what we do when we date, right? We're looking for essence then. We may not say that, but that's what we're looking for. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm keen to, in, in the chat with Carol, she talked about how well, she couldn't just spit out a dot point list. Um, and she has some essence light pro process. And I'm really, I've been actually since that chat, I've been <laughs> people watching my children, just watching them, you know, and it's like, I can't quite put it into words, but I can, you know, it's like as I encounter them and they're together, right? And I'm looking at each of them and they both have a different essence. It's like, yeah, I, I'm hungry to learn more. I, I feel like I can get there, but right. She gave a lovely example of her two grandchildren, and yes. and, and that yeah. And I, and I'm looking forward to to, to getting there. Is also what's the essence of our of our family? And like you say, yeah. that that that's the pathway to what's our role. What's our that's role? That's right. And role so, is mo you know, role gives meaning and purpose and focus and direction and you know and it's it's satisfaction lacking in the world. Yeah. Right. So what the hell? Yeah, you're, not, you're not being asked to fit into somebody else's, uh, you know, square, square hole. Mm. And um, so this work can be, and I imagine Carol said it, but this work can be, because I learned it from her, is, um, can be summarized as essence to essence relationship. Mm -hmm. If you can get there, we have a healthy planet and we have a peaceful planet when we honor each other's essence. But our education system drives it out of us. Our education system conforms to a different factory-based standard or whatever. Yeah, we lose that, the essence at five or six years old. Yeah, which is the the, the genericization of everything, of education, of right. landscape. And, of course, that, like in permaculture, that can be an issue too, that we have this generic grab bag of, of strategies and techniques that we like and, and we can right. roll them out like cookie cutters rather than doing that much harder work but ultimately more meaningful and successful, fulfilling work of, of what's, what's unique about this place. And long-lasting and evolutionary. Yeah. Now, Carol probably spoke about the three. We use three aspects for essence, core process, core purpose, and core value. Did she we we didn't. No, we didn't cover this in the chat. No. All right. life is a process. Uh -huh. That process has a purpose. The process has a purpose. It serves. And that purpose has to add value. So, you're not, you basically, if you help, that's one way of triangulating, if you will, around essence understanding could you give us another example sure um well let me share it was a kind of a funny story because for me it lasted over a period of almost 30 years mm -hmm. from this asking a question and getting an answer 30 years later so i used to live in vermont vermont is in the northeast united states it's a very green state very cut very bucolic and when we were in the the pub, drinking a beer, and, and during the fall season, we call them, which is the, where the brilliant colors of the leaves changing color, are um, trees changing color in the fall. Uh, and basically, it's bumper-to-bumper -bumper traffic for a couple of weekends. People are 
looking at the beautiful colors. You literally can't get home if you live there because you're, you're literally blocked out of driving anywhere. So, you know, we would mutter into our beer where, where um, why don't these people go to New Hampshire, which is the state right next door? Why do they come here? You know, just kind of typical bar talk. And, and um, some of you say, well, you know, the colors are better over here in Vermont. You say, yeah, could be. Then we started, well, what else is different? New Hampshire is literally 30, 30 miles away, you know, I don't know, 50 clicks away. And, oh, the politics is different. New Hampshire is incredibly conservative. Vermont is incredibly liberal. And the way they advertise, the way the government works, the way uh, farming works is significantly different. Anyway, you get the idea. It's a different, there's two different states and they're right next door to each other. Now, they're divided by the Connecticut River. And to make a long story, and I'm going to totally butcher, because it's not exactly true, but basically, Avalonia, when, when Pangea split apart, circa two and a half billion years ago, the monocontinent, Pangea, split apart, tectonic plates, the, the African plate rode down here, your direction, African plate rode down here, the Laurentian plate, which is the North American plate, rode up here, and there was a chunk of West Africa, or Northwest, which is around where Libya is, broke off, and it floated over the rift in the, in the middle of the Atlantic. And it rode that rift for a few million years and finally caught a wave and ended up slamming back into the Laurentian plate. That, this is where I'm actually going to oversimplify the story, uh, but that, that plate actually formed Maine, New Hampshire, and eastern Massachusetts. The dividing line between Africa and North America is the Connecticut River. Now, it has been turned to topsy-turvy by multiple glacial and subductions, and so it's not exactly true anymore. But, but the, but the punchline remains the same. The Connecticut River is the division between two fundamentally different geological stratas. And New Hampshire is known as the Granite State. The motto is live free or die. Vermont is a metamorphic, a sedimentary limestone marble state. Much easier. I think they have a great expression, which is totally complementary or you know, contradictory to the New Hampshire one. Anyway, that was when, and we were learning, I was learning this when we were doing a project in Boston. And when we work on a project, we work as the largest possible area we can understand because that context actually informs the way we think. So that was when I learned why people come to Vermont. And why New Hampshire is different? Because the farmers had to be basically hard scrabble SOBs to get that work done. They were a different kind of breed to be able to each survive in that state and that landscape. And the Vermonters had it easy. So there was a there was you know I'm oversimplifying, but it that geolo geology expressed entirely different states of being in those two, which I thought was pretty cool. That, that is cool. Yeah, I'm just thinking here, within 20 kilometers of where I'm sitting right now, we have a lot of sedimentary uh, country, 400 million year old, really leached, nutrient poor country. And then there's pockets of richer, only 4 million year old volcanics. And then there's mm -hmm. some granite as well. What, totally different land uses. And I'd never thought about that before, but it's totally true. The types of people that are A, drawn there, sometimes because of whether or not they can afford it you know yeah the, the, this, just what you have to be prepared for and what you have to go through and how you have to be in these different geologies matters always start with the geology mm. that's the that's the foundation that's the bedrock mm -hmm. and we're not the only ones that say that but it it that's the place to begin you learn so much about a place that way now what's the point about new hampshire having you know being you know 
granite in Vermont. Well, it's kind of interesting. It helps you understand yourself. But, you know, and it's a, what, what this is, it's a way of working with the people of a place in such a way that you're, th you're holding up a mirror to them. You know that Natal province in South Africa, I see you, Avatar, you know, use that as their, I see you. That's a great greeting, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're taking the time to see them in their own world. In fact, offering them a view of themselves that they may not have even had before. It's a wonderful way to get rid of the ego and, and to be, to be, because this work is about working with them, not imposing an idea from us. So that opens the door to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I like that. I touched them with, with touched on that with Joel as well, that, that you know, I strive to work in this way too. My job is not to come in as some expert and impose my brilliant ideas on a situation, but to facilitate, to support the place and the people to be who they are together and to find their role and, and, and which is a really worthy work, you know, I and mean, there's plenty of work to be done there and people do often really benefit and need that support. So it's not like you don't have a job anymore. You just have a much more interesting job. Oh, it's, it's a different job. And in <laughs> fact, it's, it's a longer lasting job. You're not just delivering a thing. You're delivering relationships. You're delivering understanding. And that's part of your journey, right? My understanding is that we, you were an architect or worked in, well, yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a recovering architect. Yeah, yeah. I used to used to be a thing designer. Exactly. Now you're a um an essence diviner and um. Well, I like that. I, I'm probably not that. It's not my skill set. But what I am is an advocate for sure, on terms of moving from. Uh, well, I've always been a. I was one of the early passive solar designers in the '70s and. Uh, one of the early, uh, one of the co-founders of the lead rating system. So it was always been a journey to um, understand how to be better, right? Better, better stewards is really not the best word, but it, right, at the moment it was stewards of life. I, I think I prefer the word gardener because I think that's reciprocal. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, um, that journey was how do we figure out it's life that we're sustaining, not just buildings. So lead hits hit a, a dead end pretty early and what was the discovery that I made in lead is that it was a bunch of checklists, right? But we knew we had to integrate them to define synergies. And that was my revelation when I started realizing, well, yeah, we got to integrate these. They function together as a whole. And then the question that I still have got an answer to is where do we stop integrating? And I mean, I think the metaphysical answer is we never do, but um, so when do we stop developing? When do we stop evolving? But that led me in, through that. I met Regenesis, and then they opened up a, this other world of permaculture, which I'd never heard of. And then, of course, how do we actually work with people in that way, which is deep organizational development in terms of human development, not just an organizational development, but personal development, organizational development in service of the larger system. That we call that three lines of work. That unless you're working in all three lines, you're actually not you're not going to be able to sustain it because there's no will or drive without that larger. And if you're only working on yourself, that's pretty narcissistic. And if you're only working with the team without working on yourself, you're going to blow up. I like what Kathy Lazo she says, she says, sustainability is, is an inside job. And uh, that's true. You have to go there, but you also have to be able to sustain relationships with each other, which requires even a deeper engagement with who you are. And then that group needs to understand that we have this larger system that we're in service to. Now you're, now you're cooking with gas. Sorry, mm -hmm. bad analogy in climate change, but nonetheless, that, um, 
now you're now you're able to really accomplish some some significant growth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I, I, I like that. I like that the, the three lines of work thing. Hey, tell me, I'll be curious just to get you. What's your? Is there a chance you've got a skewed perspective on permaculture? Because the the permaculturists you hang out Probably. with, are, <laughs> they're a pretty weird bunch, right? Or they're you know they're not they're not your. I don't know how representative <laughs> they are of, of permaculture in general, but do you have a, spe- a perspective on permaculture as a, as a global phenomenon and, and where it's at and where it's heading? Or, you know, do you have anything well, to say about that? Or? Well, yeah. Hmm. Well, my wife took her, my wife has her permaculture design certificate. So I know how little she knows. About. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's a natural green thumb and animal whisperer and all that. But in terms of, it, it you know it became an expo in a sensitivity to some level of natural system understanding and how human human um, food production and and survival de- is dependent on how we actually engage these systems on their own terms. That's the way I see permaculture, and I think that's what people are introduced to in the permaculture design certi- certificate. But that's about it. It 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 isn't really what we're. I think Joel. Joel would say it much better than I would because I'm speaking for him. But basically what he realized is that I just did this great site, you know, where his far, his house was and his land and right. And it was this oasis, green oasis in the desert. And there was no other green oasis. Nobody else was picking up on it. So how do you develop the capacity to spread this work? Right. Um, and also build the capacity for people to, to flash out, and build a field around this. Um, so I don't, I think, you know, what you and I gather David Holmgren are, have been working on is kind of what we've been doing the last 25 years is how do we actually design a process that allows for a larger field to be built by field. Is that a fair statement? Uh, tell, tell me what you mean by field and then I'll tell you. Okay, good. I was going to do that because I think it's really a powerful, powerful point. Hmm. Is that, and I actually said this in our in our email. How do we get massive change on the planet? And it isn't one building at a time or one farm at a time, although they can be acupuncture points to do that. So, when we work in communities, when we're doing a really good job, what we're doing is we're assembling. First of all, we usually assemble a bunch of people in a community um, around a problem. They they're angry at a developer, or they're angry at the destruction of an ecosystem of some sort, and they're they want to fight, right? Sometimes we get invited in because we believe that humans and nature are one, that we can harmonize our relationship, that we need to. In fact, if we don't. But it's interesting. It's our, our sheltering system that's destroying the planet. You know, we need, we need shelter and we need nutrients, right, as a species, as living entities. And it's through our sheltering we're destroying the land and it's through our agriculture we're destroying the land. So we have to, we have to reverse that. We have to actually heal the land and heal our people through these mechanisms of sheltering and, and, and agriculture. So when we work in the city, we're basically saying the problem is not the problem. The, the, the design development is not the problem. The issue is not the problem. It's the system that we need to be working on. So what's the potential of the system to be more, to be healthy, have, have evolutionary health? Because that's the game we're staying in. If we're not staying in the game of evolution, we're blowing smoke. It's not, this is what it's all about. So how do we participate in evolution? Well, when you expand a system to this larger whole, how big is here, is what the Harrisons call it, 
we actually have many more variables to work on and so much more potential. Can we bring this place back to the state of health that people remember at a minimum? And can we help them understand that it actually has so much more potential? Well, that's why we do what we call a story of place. So we engage the people in this storying process. Essence, really, this is about what the essence. Stories hold essence, basically. And we get a few people coming out. We make it 40 or 50 people. And that each of those people represent an arena, mobility, climate change, uh, water, you know, habitat connectivity. We bring them together. I think we talked about this at the beginning. We're bringing them together and integrating them in service of this larger system. Now, we don't get everybody participating. In this project in Chile that we were working on, the mayor did not want to talk to us. She commanded her staff, her planning staff and sustainability staff, not to talk to us. The executive director of the Chamber of Commerce said, I don't need to talk to a couple of gringos from the States about how our city works. So he didn't want to talk to us. And so we had this core group of people, 40, 50 people. We met with them every six weeks. Now this is really important, is that it's a practice. It is not episodic. It is not an event. And this is the hard part for most people to understand is because we are on such, we have been trained to be on automatic. We're on automatic all the time. We don't, this is what we do. This is how we solve problems. So what we're working on with these people is how do we work together to address this larger system, the potential for this health. Now, what happens after about nine months, 10 months, is that people begin to start saying, they start saying, wow, this is really cool. And if I talk to you and you work with me and we, we could actually solve more problems together and we could actually um, combine our resources, our funding, so we could actually have leverage instead of fighting over each silo, right? So it takes a while to get off that protection, protective automatic zone. And what happened in this project in Chile, after 10 months, the executive director of the Chamber of Commerce calls our client and says, Ricardo, I don't know what you guys are doing, but count us in. This is the first time the city's been able to dream in 30 years. And so the mayor, two years later, said, can we play? And so what happens is that a field is developed, and it's a field of attraction called an energy field. It sounds woo-woo, but let's make it real. When you walk by, a, if you're in a neighborhood and you walk by a house with a great party, you can just feel the vibe, right? It's, whoa, I want to go to that party. That's an energy field. And the same, conversely, you, you open, you, you're in an office building and there's been a wild argument in this conference room and you're late for the meeting and you open the door and what do you feel, right? Ooh, I have a dentist appointment. I'm going to go up. So that's an energy field. Fields are instantly transferable. And if we build fields along with scalable stuff, which is more of a mechanical metaphor, but field building is how I believe we will change the world and how we can get massive change going. So does that help with fields? Yeah, it does help. No, yeah, it's, it's good. Yeah. I just, I just said something emerge. I, I remember a talk David Holmgren gave some years ago, a keynote at a permaculture convergence. And part of it, he'd, he'd written a controversial article called Crash on Demand. One thing he was getting across in his talk is that sometimes the way permaculture can be communicated and I guess practiced is like, like look, you have to do this. We have to do this because we're screwed otherwise. Yeah. Um, and people don't particularly like being told that they have to do things. And also it can be done in a way where there's this like, oh, you know, we're carrying the weight of the future of the, or something, you know, this is, this is, it's, it's kind of a Sisyphus. Very, 
yeah, we're, yeah, we're taking a hit for some, you know, we, 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 this is a burden. And he was getting across the fact that, hey, all this stuff can happen in a way. And that's part of the point is that it's a whole lot of fun. Like you're getting more connected into your place. You're growing your food. You're connecting with your neighbors. You know, you're, you're having interesting um, experiences with chickens and goats or, or whatever. I mean, <laughs> I should reword that. You're having uh, you know, interesting conversations. <laughs> I'm, do- I'm, 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 I'm glad you're having fun down there, Dan. <laughs> I'll make a decision later if I edit that out. Of it. <laughs> I no, I think- it you got to keep it in. <laughs> but you know, the point is that that if we're having fun, and he talked about it, if we if we're doing this and we're having fun, we don't need to go and try and explain or talk people into it. People will pick up on the exactly. on the vibe, and they'll be like, "Hey, what's going on?" And that's totally my experience. I mean, I I was involved in starting something called Perma Blitz where a bunch of volunteers come and make over someone's backyard permaculture styles, according to some prior design work and all that. Yeah. And I think that's the sort of thing you're getting at. There's energy there. There's a field there. Pe- people walking off the street. They're like, what's happening? Just the energy of, wow, all these people are just voluntarily working in your garden. That's cool. And neighbors are coming in and, and there's been hundreds of those now and it's spreading around the world. And I, I, you're spot on. But wait, wait, I, wait, I want to just make another point there. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's a point that I know, Carol rolls her eyes. I think Joel does too. But nonetheless, uh, I like it because I think it actually, it sounds as bizarre as it sounds. You may have noticed that when you work systemically with good principles in a place, you start seeing a turnaround within 18 months. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. We see that all the time. And we also see socially 18 months. When I ask, I've actually kind of stopped asking my clients how much time they saved on a project because the answer is 18 months. It's kind of weird how consistent it is. And I, I, there was a, a Jewish uh, calligrapher, or is, you know, Israel, Hebrew speaker, said, you know, yeah, you know what 18 is in Hebrew? Uh, I don't know. She's chai. It's life. 18 is life. And uh, she said, so put that in your pipe and smoke it. So <laughs> I, uh, I like to say we can heal the world in 18 months if we get our act together. Now, I know that's a histrionic and probably disturbing statement, but the only thing that's missing is the will and understanding to do so. We have all the tech. We don't need any more technology. That, that was Bill Mollison's, a big part of his message in starting permaculture is look, we, mm-hmm. we know enough to, to be able to turn things around or do things differently. It's, it's, we just got to do it. And for me, coming out of my first permaculture design course with Bill Mollison and Jeff Lawton, that was a big thing it was just walking around the streets thinking, hang on, like there's nothing but stopping. Like this is possible. It's, you know, it's, it's possible to, uh, yards to be dripping in food and all, you know, my understanding of, of it at that point. And that was really exciting to me. It's like, Oh yeah, there's, there's actually no, there's not a concrete wall between here and there. It's, it's just, we just got to decide to do it and do it. Yeah. Which so, of course so, that, that is, that is, that's the rub of course. That, yeah. It's not that easy, but yeah. But, but that's what, that's why what we talk about our work is about building will. Uh-huh. And that's why love is so important in this you know, and basically um, potential, but potential and love, these kind of motivating concepts. But I want to go back to something you said. You you were kind of edging around, you know, what do I understand about permaculture? So teach me, Dan, what am I missing about permaculture that I may have um, misconstrued or? No, I think you're on track. I mean, I I vagued out, you gave a sort of a one sentence understanding. I thought, shit, I'm going to have to go back and listen to that because I vagued out of that moment. Can you repeat that? Mm, Boy, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> um, probably not but again and maybe i have to get um back to you god it's a funny question what um what would i i think i'd have to restart the conversation with that frame in mind mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, what? Anyway, what, what, what went through my mind is, oh, well, maybe, maybe I could, you know, maybe I need a little bit of a schooling here. So, you know, I would appreciate that. But uh, just to speak about it again, is that I'll try to, is that permaculture is a systemic understanding of how life wants to work in that particular place at its best. It's not imposing it, right? I think a lot of permacultures do impose ideas rather than elicit ideas, but the best permaculture is, is understanding the way life wants to work and working our human needs within that structure. I didn't yeah. say that last time, but yeah, no, I think that's good. I mean, the human needs part there is yeah, this idea that we we're we're participating in our local ecologies to produce for our own needs in locally, right? Inside of systems that I can't I, don't, I can't say nature mimicking anymore after that chat with Carol. No, you can't. But it's a know, terrible. It's a terrible concept, actually. I mean, it's not. I mean, I appreciate it, and it's really inspired lots of people. But if we mimic nature, we still we are still are not becoming nature. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. No, so it's objectifying nature, which is what biophilia, which is what the biophilia movement is doing. It's anthropomorphizing that, you know, where nature is in service to me. That is not reciprocal, right? Mm-hmm. So the real work is how do we actually engage in, a, in reciprocity, this, a dance of reciprocity? Yeah, really. fully. Yeah. Yeah. Which comes back to what we're starting at the beginning. That was my take on what Carol was getting at. She doesn't necessarily, like she said, we're not part of nature. You know, I'm, I'm sure she, it was more about her disrupting where she thought I was going and maybe I was going in the moment. I think that's would be Carol Stein. <laughs> but it was around, uh, like, A, don't, don't think of nature as this other thing that we need to learn from and copy or steward or, you know, or, or whatever. And where it's more about we are part of nature or we, we are nested within life and we have like that was part of the point she made in, in addressing that was we I think we humans have a unique role to play. Yeah, we, yeah I'm we pretty have... sure that's what she meant. And by the way, mimicking nature in the service of the products we design makes a whole lot of sense. There's nothing wrong with it. It is just not what we should be striving for or aspiring to. I mean, I, I was reflecting afterwards too. Like, I think often mimicking means we want to take the you know the distinctiveness of one thing and try and you know, impose it over here. And that, that is a really problematic. There is a sense in which I, because uh, the point I was making at the time was around moving our focus from trying to uh, recreate the outcomes of natural processes, so systems that have these characteristics of catching and storing energy in, it, in everything. And from mm-hmm. Christopher Alexander, my interest in is, is how can we understand how the rest of nature, what are the dynamics of the processes, the general dynamics, not the specific, and how can we, can we be reminded because we do overlap with those. We have our own unique role, role to play. But like, for example, in, in watching time-lapse photography of an oak, of an acorn um, cracking and germinating and growing into a little, you know, there's, there's insights in there that are profoundly useful, which turns out to be how we got to be as well. Like the, the, the dynamics through which we develop from a single cell into a, a f- mm-hmm. three fetus human, all, all that stuff, which is about getting away from assembly and master planning and, um, and, and, and all that kind of thing. Yeah. So you said something that prompted me. Oh, so, you know, so I think, and I, I actually want to, want to be, I want to not be a snarky here. I think what biomimicry has done, a lot of people are asking deeper questions. You know, how do we social, how does social structures mimic nature? And so their, their questions are going more, more deep for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think we're all on this journey and we can call, I don't care whether you call this regeneration or Fred, you know, it doesn't matter. What we do, what we need to be doing is that we are participating in, in, in the, we have to stay in the game of evolution. And until we are actually conscious of that, we will continue to be shooting ourselves in the foot. 
And, and on that front, Bill, what, what's your was his prognosis the word? Like, you know, you seem like a pretty upbeat guy. You know, you're engaged and you, you seem to be in touch with your own essence and, you know, found your role in the world. But what's your feel for the, you know, because people ask this question, right? Like, how, do you think we're, we're screwed or what, what's no, your feel? We are, we are screwed. There's no doubt about it. But what does that mean to be screwed? I mean, we all die. So we all die. So what, what, yeah, I mean, we're, we're screwed whether the planet is healthy or not. Uh, what's, what's the sad thing is, is that we've left a pile of mess for, ki- for our kids and our kids' kids. And that's a sad thing. But, you know, this may sound like a non-sequitur, but uh, is, you know, Einstein is used for everything these days. But I'll say Einstein stopped growing, but he never stopped developing. And what's the journey of life for? It's not to accrue more stuff, of course. I think we all know that. And people, anybody listening to this podcast would certainly know that. But our, our real, and the secret sauce, if you will, for this work is your own personal development. And maintaining, I mean, I, I wake up with angst every morning. And yet, you know what? It's pretty good. It's a pretty good life. And yes, it's tragic and there's people suffering and dying. And I probably, I might be in that, who knows, tomorrow I might have an accident. You never know. And so, you know, Stephen Hawking, I think Eckhart Tolle quotes Stephen Hawking, um, you know, who, who basically saw life as the most wonderful adventure. And he was, you know, it was all living up here. It was all developing up here. His body was a mess, right? And so I think we just have these weird expectations, but ultimately this is a metaphysical journey and the sooner we get on with it, the better. And then death isn't so frightening and um, we get on with it. So it's a, it's a journey of discovery and that's what I'm excited about. And yes, I, I'm, I'm very sad. Mm-hmm. I didn't used to be, mm-hmm. but um, we, we've missed, you know, we just, I mean, I've been on this road for 40 years and what do we what do we have for it? We have Donald Trump. So, you know, we have all these reactionary politics who are responding with barriers instead of understanding that if we engage, we could actually handle the, the food. Syria, the immigration is a result of a food crisis the, by poor farming practices. Really, that's the root. Nobody's talking about that. It's as if it's kind of appeared. People are immigrating uh, and becoming refugees because they want to. So what's the source? We're unable to look at simple linear systems as a, as a culture. And I'll say that is fucked up. And so I don't know. Our, our work is about helping people see those systemic connections. But it's not systemic drawing arrows and sources and sinks. It's a living matrix of life. And until we understand our purpose and our role, systems thinking will be actually kind of meaningless and mechanical. The systems thinking has multiple levels of, of evolutionary understanding. Living systems thinking is understanding that we are here to participate in evolutionary processes. And the more we observe and the more we participate, the more joy we're going to have. We're going to understand our role. It's right back to essence again. I'm probably being incoherent right now. But I, um, anyway, I'll stop. No, thanks. I think that's helpful. I mean, I, I, I'm, I encounter... And sometimes the person I'm encountering is myself by doing like often slightly younger people that are into permaculture in a space where they're, they're struggling with the existential anxiety around that feeling. Oh, yeah. of, like everything is just fucking falling to 
bits, you know, and, and it's just, it all seems so meaningless. And but I, I liked, I, I feel like I'm in a similar place to you. Like, listen to and acknowledge the sadness, the fear, the anger. You don't be disconnected for, from the, the catastrophe enveloping and unfolding right. all around us. At the same time, for me anyway, it's like, hey, what, what can I affect? What else are you going to do? Yeah, exactly. What, so what am I going to do? You're going to cry in your beer? <laughs> exactly. Am I going yes. to yeah, get depressed, cry in my beer? You know, am I going to knock myself off? Or am I going to do whatever the hell I can right. and, and, and do what I can with this life force? And like you say, oh, guess what? Here and there, I'm having a, you know, some deep, meaningful fun, high-level fun, yeah. enjoyment, connection along the way. And we're growing. So I'm learning things. That's, that's the gift. That's the, you know... GDP is a fiction, right? And it's destroying the planet. But this, this, and this, right, have nothing to do with GDP. He just pointed to his head and his heart for someone who might be listening to this. Oh, right, right. And all the great religions have taught that. You know, this practice of regeneration comes from ancient spiritual traditions. The ancients knew how to hold holes. The ancients knew how to actually, they thought much more richly. We've been just caught up in this trap of reductionism and fragmentation, which has been very important, but has kept us away from the evolutionary. You know, I, I, I've been quoting this a lot, and maybe I'm becoming a broken record, but uh, do you know who Tecumseh was? The Shawnee chieftain in the United States, well, North no. America. He, he was brilliant, brilliant chief of the Shawnee tribe, which is on the Ohio river. And he almost got assembled all the, all the native American tribes to be push the United States back into the ocean. He was powerful leader. And I may be making this hyperbolic, but he, he still, he was a brilliant guy. Well, the first time he saw a book, now I'm going to grossly paraphrase this just to make the point, but he said, he saw a book and he said, Holy shit, the white man has frozen the word. Now that's a powerful thought. Now, he didn't say it exactly like that, but that's what he meant, is that, oh, no, you can't put life in data because it's always evolving. And at the same time, he said, this is powerful medicine, right? This is really important stuff. And what he was doing, I was just in New Zealand and talking with a Maori leader, and you know, it was all about how do we marry the square world and the round world? Because that's where we're going. We have to harmonize that, right? And the point about Tecumseh is, is that, as long as we, we, we need to get out of this fragmentation, because that's what he was saying. When we fragment the world and put it in a book and expect that to be knowledge, we keep referring back to it, right? Instead of looking, into the, looking at the future. Well, here's what the book said must be true. No, not anymore. We're on, it's, it's now here. How do we look forward? And how, do we, how do we live into potential, not protect existence, is really what this work needs to be. So throw away the books and start paying attention is another way to think about this. I like that. How do we live into potential? Would you say how do we not, not protect existence, live into potential? Well, how do we live into potential and not protect existence? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I said that, but reel it back and we'll figure out what I said. Yeah. In the moment, I think it's what I said made sense. We'll figure out who the hell said what. Yeah, this is, I've, 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 I'll be interested to see what, this, what the heck this sounds like. I, th- I think it's been good. It's been lively. We've really been just, you know, kind of wandering over some interesting territory and the thing is right if anyone thinks you know we've it's been a bit that it hasn't had enough focus or i didn't prepare enough questions well tough luck it's my podcast (laughs) (laughs) 
This is what well, I do. I, like a, I, I love a good ramble, Dan. This is a fun <laughs> ramble. Yeah, no, I get people I want to hang out with and get to know better and learn stuff from. And we have conversations and whatever happens, happens. And But at the same time, I, I mean, one thing I will come back to is you asked that question about did, did what you were saying about fields resonate with my understanding of what work I'm doing with David Holmgren. And I've been, mm. I, I, don't, I don't know if he would use the word essence, but when I, when I read, when, when I'm with him when he's reading landscape and I'm, I like to read David Holmgren reading landscape when I'm seeing what he's doing, it's 100% like, the part like really honoring geology like geology is huge for him and rather than just assembling the parts the rocks and stuff he is dealing with individual rocks and, and plateaus and stuff and, and valleys and all that but he's he's using all those as windows into the whole landscape and and really wanting to get a handle on the geological history and how's that how that's resulted in what's going on and very much unpacking the the uniqueness of this place I'm sure I'd agree that that's what he's what he's yeah. doing and getting through the superficial what, what we're talking about is the personality of the place to what's what's its distinctiveness what's just dis- right and honor honoring that place and then therefore not imposing your ideas on it that's right like this listening who are you what have you got to share with yeah, who are you that's the question we ask is who is this place yeah who are you yeah like, how does like, how does this place work you yeah uh, it's, it's dynamic and um this is all about, di- see, this is the other thing. There's not an answer here. This is, this is a dynamic unfolding of understanding. Mm-hmm. And, that's the, and that's why we emphasize, if Carol or Joel, well, so much to talk about, is that we don't talk about thinking, we talk about imaging. Carol talked about that, yeah. So, you know, you can't think your way into this. You have to image it. You have to run, uh, I probably downgrade it by saying, you got to run the movie. You got to image the, the, all of this working to be able to actually understand it. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And that's, Carol really emphasized that. that she said, we've lost the ability to image in context, to image something mm-hmm. functioning, moving in context. And, and I do get that sense when I'm seeing David read landscape. That's what he's doing. Like he's imaging it. It's like, he, you know, I'm, I'm looking at a hill. He's looking at a, at a volcano erupting in this, you know, like six kilometer wide. Exactly. So, yeah, this flow, is, you know. yeah, there's some great articles written by um, great talks from the uh, gathering of, Native American scholars who are basically First Nations people who are just writing about their what's really going on inside of them, kind of translating it for the white person, right? Uh-huh. And you know, the, you hear this that, that you know, who is a mountain? And a mountain is not an elevated thing above a plane, right? It is a whole series of elevational changes of different habitats evolving through time and climatological issues complex dynamic living organism it ain't a thing no english is actually a terrible language to speak to actually understand this word because so much so we're a noun oriented language we're a thing oriented language that's what's cool about being in new zealand and with maori language uh imagine it's the same in, in aboriginal australia but the language is alive nested words are nested they pack incredible amounts of dynamic energy. Uh, the, the words move. The words are dynamic, actuals, the way they're structured. So you have a whole different take on how you see the world. All right. Well, I, we've probably kind of uh, surfed the energy waves enough here. So thanks, Dan. Thank you. Bye. All right. Till soon. Ciao. Well, thanks so much for listening. I hope you got some value out of that conversation. And thanks, I ran it past about 10 
friends are making permaculture stronger before I released it just to see if they thought it was um, coherent enough because that it was pretty wide ranging. Chad, a, a good ramble as Bill put it. That was a resounding yes. Thanks for you folk for effectively bringing this to air. One outcome has been that Bill and I have agreed, and I think we've already booked in a second chat where it's going to be much more focused and more of a more of Bill in a systematic way laying out this approach. So I'm really looking forward to that. And so keep that in mind. That's that's coming up. Before that, I've already recorded a conversation with the wonderful Yasha Raw from Oldenburg, Germany, ladies and gentlemen. So he's from the, the Institute for Participatory Design, I think. And he, with his partner Sonia Horster, developed the field process model. I've interviewed him previously and shared an article. I know he's had a, has a real impact on a lot of people out there. I see his work referred to all the time. And he's recently co-created something called the Co-Creation Foundation. And so we have a fantastic conversation about that catch-up on his latest, where, to be honest with you, I am angling to organize a trip which is sounding pretty promising. It was Yasha's idea, I think. But I, I, I like this idea of bringing design practitioners, cutting-edge folk from around the place, and finding excuses to hang out with them and learn from them. So that's coming up. Uh, on other fronts, you can check out the website, makingpermaculturestronger.net, to stay abreast of what's happening here. Don't forget, those of you that are itching to donate cash to Making Permaculture Stronger, that it's your lucky day because there's a Patreon account now which you can track down on the website. To follow up on some of Bill's stuff, check out regenesisgroup.com. They told me that the regenesis.com was taken by Genesis cover band, so they missed out on that one. Uh, you can learn a bit more about Bill, about the approach. There's a bunch of videos there. There's also going to be, pardon my French, but a small shitload of resources and links and stuff that Bill's kindly passed on. So if you go to the show notes, the release page, there's plenty to check out there. They've got a thing called the Regenerative Practitioner Training, if you're, if you're interested in learning from these folk. And yeah, I'll, I'll wrap it up. And uh, look forward to catching up with you on episode 22. Take care now. Catch you later.